Will you join me in prayer? Almighty God, we pray this morning that you would speak, that you would speak into your church. Lord, we thank you that we have this place where we can come, we can worship, and we can hear your words spoken, we can study who you are. But Lord, we pray this morning that as we worship And as we hear your word and as we go to Bible studies, Lord, that you would speak, O Lord, to our hearts. That you would change us from the inside out to help us become the men and women of God that you've called us to be. To be the light of Jesus Christ in this world. To be the salt of the earth. So speak, O Lord, right now, in this moment. Speak to our hearts and minds and help us to hear what your Spirit is leading us to do. We thank you, Lord. And we pray all of this in the name of our Lord and our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. Welcome. I want you to take your Bibles or your apps or whatever you read on, and I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. Now, let me give you a warning. We are going to be doing a lot of reading this morning, so I would highly advise you grab a Bible and and turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible or an app with you, uh, there are Bibles in the pews, uh, right in the back of the pew in front of you. Uh, Grab one of those Bibles and flip over to 1 Kings chapter 3. The easiest way to find 1 Kings is to go about three or four pages into your Bible and find the table of contents. I'll be honest with you, 1 Kings is kind of smack dab in the middle between Genesis and Psalms, um, so it's really just easier to do it that way. 1 Kings is found in the section called the Old Testament, uh, and again, it's kind of between uh, Genesis and Psalms if you're familiar with that section of the Bible. Now, as you're turning to 1 Kings chapter 3, let me open this morning with a question. Have you ever thought or considered, or or spent time dwelling on how to end well. Have you ever thought about, you know, uh, know, some of us in the room are not anywhere near uh, old age. Some of us are old age. Some of us are in between somewhere. But I think there's a point in every person's life where they need to stop and say, how do I ensure, how do I put in place the things that I need to do so that my life ends well for the glory of God? And I think that's a great question that we should always be thinking about, that this should be something that we're in, you know, considering uh, and, and analyzing our lives and honestly looking at the lives around us and how they, uh, they endured and they ran the race well. Because let's be honest, Christ never calls us to take a break from our faith, does he? That Christ never says, oh, you've done enough, you can take a break before you actually go to heaven. There's no indication that we ever can take a break from living our faith out day by day by day. Uh, We never, let me put it this way, we never retire from being a Christian. You may retire from whatever career path uh, you've been on. You may retire from, from some hobby um, you know, I'm fully aware. I, I'm a, I love to 
uh, do snow sports like skiing and snowboarding, and I fully know that there's going to be a day where I'm going to have to retire that because I physically probably won't be able to do it at some point. But there's no point in our faith where we're given permission to retire from what Christ has called us to do. And I think we have a great example, sadly, of what not to do when it comes to ending well. And so I want you to take your Bibles and now take your Bibles and turn to that 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the life of a man named Solomon. Now let me give you some background as you're opening to 1 Kings 3. Solomon is one of the sons of King David, the, one of the greatest kings in all of Israel's history. King David uh, reigned. He, he had a heart that followed after God's desires. He wrote most of the book of Psalms. He was, he was a faithful, godly man. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. David made some big mistakes in his life. He, he, he sinned. Let's just call it out. He did some really pretty horrific things. But his response to the times that he fell, the times that he sinned, the times that he fell short of glorifying God, he responded when he did those things in a very righteous and godly way. And so he had this amazing reign over the kingdom of Israel. And then when he passes, he passed his kingdom to his son Solomon. Now there's some stuff that happens in 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2 that you can read about where Solomon and one of his brothers, a half-brother that he had, uh, kind of fought over the kingdom. But ultimately, Solomon becomes king. Now, look with me at what happens at the very beginning of King Solomon's span of being the king. Start in verse 5 of chapter 3. Solomon has gone to a place to worship God. And look at what happens in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5. It says, <clears throat> At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, Ask whatever you want, and I will give it to you. Solomon answered, verse 6, Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart, you have continued his, this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, <clears throat> Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? So I want you to imagine for just a moment, Solomon, David's son, has gone to worship at a place called Gibeon. He has just now become the king of God's chosen people. And during the night, as he sleeps, God comes to him in a dream and says, ask whatever you want. Now Solomon, if you keep reading, God recognizes that Solomon could have asked for power. He could have asked for land. He could have asked for wealth. He could have asked for influence. But what does he ask for? What is it that, that Solomon asks God for? I want to read it out loud. Verse 9, he says, So give your servant 
a discerning heart to govern your people. Give me wisdom so that I can govern your people the way they should be governed. Solomon recognized that his heart needed to be in the right place and that he needed wisdom in his heart to do what God wanted him to do. And so what does God give him? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 10. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you've asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. But moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And listen to what he says. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will also give you long life. And then Solomon awoke and he realized that he had been in a dream. Isn't that amazing? God recognizes that Solomon asked for the right thing. Solomon could have asked for any number of things, but he asked for a discerning heart to govern the people. And so God gives him this beautiful promise, okay? You're going to have wisdom, and it's going to be amazing to the point that there will be no one like you before or after you. But look at what he does. Actually, let's do a confirmation. Now flip over to chapter 9. You're in 3. So you just need to go over a few pages till you see a big nine. Chapter nine, and we're going to start in verse one. This is later on in Solomon's life, and I want you to see that God confirms what he has just told Solomon at the early part of his life. So chapter nine, verse one, this is what it says. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all that he desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time. Remember, he appeared to him in his early kingship in Gibeon. Now he's appearing to him in Jerusalem where Solomon has just built the first great temple of the Lord. So, verse 2, the Lord appeared to him a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I've heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, catch what he says here, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as, your, as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised David your father when I said you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. So God confirms yet again the promise that he made to, De- to Solomon in chapter 3. But there's a caveat, there, there's a catch. In both chapters 3 and chapter 9, God says that this is conditional on Solomon obeying and keeping his heart devoted to God 100%. Okay? So, keep that in mind for just a moment. Now, let's look and see what we see about Solomon's Wisdom. So go back to chapter 3. I told you we were going to be in here a lot. Chapter 3, go back there. And I want to look at chapter 3 starting in verse 16. 
This is a, if you have read the Bible or you grew up in church, you may have heard this story before about Solomon's judgment in a difficult court case. So look at what it says. I think it's just interesting to read this one. I couldn't resist. So, chapter 3, verse 16. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, Pardon me, my lord. This woman and I live in the same house. I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone, and there was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she laid on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. And when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son that I had born. The other woman said, no, no, no. The living one is my son. The dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours. The living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. Can you imagine being the king and having to figure out what to do in this situation? Two angry women trying to fight over a baby. This is a lose-lose scenario for Solomon. There's not many ways that this is going to work out where it's going to be favorable. But look at Solomon's response. Verse 23. The king said, this one says my son is alive and your son is dead, while the other one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. Okay, where's this going? So they brought a sword for the king. And then he gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. And the woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. And then the king gave this ruling, give the living baby to the first woman, do not kill him. She is his mother. Then all of Israel heard the verdict that the king had given. They held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administrate justice. It's just a crazy, wild story, right? Early in King Solomon's life, he's given a lose-lose scenario court case. And through the wisdom that God had given him, he figures out what to do. Isn't that amazing? Now, fast forward, he, he, there are many instances between chapters 3 and chapter 10 where Solomon demonstrates great wisdom. We've got an uh, instance where the queen from Sheba comes up and she uh, has heard about King Solomon's uh, great knowledge and wisdom and she comes to test him and then she goes away saying not only is he wise, he's wiser than I was ever told. He's twice as wise as what people were telling me and she glorifies God in the midst of Solomon's wisdom. But remember that caveat, that catch that God said that God had on Solomon's wisdom? Remember he said, I will let your kingdom reign. It will, you will have a, a son on the throne forever of the kingdom of Israel. And your wisdom will be unmatched, blah, blah, blah. If you will keep my covenants and you will keep your heart devoted to me. Remember that? Well, now here's the part where Solomon goes the wrong direction. Take your Bibles now and turn to 1 Kings chapter 10. And if you've never read 1 Kings, you know, the first 11 chapters, this week, go and read this. This, 
What God does in Solomon's life is phenomenal. Uh, you, you really should take some time and read this. Now, chapter 10. I want you to pick up with me in verse 26. Chapter 10, verse 26. It says, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Kew at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. Now, let me ask you something. Does this sound out of the ordinary for a king to do? To accumulate horses and, and do all of this? No. It's exactly what you would expect for a king. And continue, if you were to continue on in the beginning of chapter 11, we read that Solomon had 700 wives and concubines. Wow. Right? 700 wives and concubines. Guys, I can't keep up with the one wife I have. How do you keep up with 700 wives and concubines? But Solomon had that. And, and if you actually do some research into ancient uh, practices, this is actually common practice for kings during Solomon's day. It was common practice for a king to accumulate as much land and wealth and wives as he possibly could gather together. So why is this a problem? I told you that this was an issue. Listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 17 has to say. So it says this. This is the commands that God has given to Moses. And Moses is retelling it to the people. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, 14, uh, Moses says, When you enter the land of the Lord your God, and the land He has given you, and you have taken possession of it, and have settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you or uh, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more from them. Where did the horses that Solomon had, where did he get them from? Egypt and Kew. Kew was an offshoot of the Egyptian kingdom. He is in direct disobedience to what God gave them to do with a king. Continue reading in this passage in, first, or in Deuteronomy 17. It says, The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives. Wait. Solomon had 700 wives and concubines. But Deuteronomy 17 says, He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. And he must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. Um, guys, am I missing something? Or is Solomon not obeying what Deuteronomy commands him to do as king? He does the direct opposite of God's Word. 
God said, don't accumulate horses, especially from Egypt, and don't acquire so much wealth, and don't get a bunch of wives. What does Solomon do? He gathers so much wealth that silver, the value of silver is like the value of a stone. He gathers so many horses that he has to build cities for the stables. And where does he get the horses? From the one place that God told him not to gather horses, Egypt. And he gathers himself 700 wives and concubines, even though Deuteronomy 17 explicitly commands him not to. Not only does it say not many wives, but it also says not many foreign wives. Let's read what else he does, shall we? Go back to 1 Kings. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord <clears throat> had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. There are commands after commands after commands that Solomon, out of a lack of wisdom, decides to disobey. Now, why is this an issue? Well, first off, this is a heart issue. This is an issue of Solomon's heart and where his heart was at. Because at the beginning of his reign, Solomon's heart was all about devotion to God. God, give me wisdom, give me discernment to lead your people. I need you. And then as his reign, as he gains more power, he accumulates wealth and horses and wives and concubines and lives in disobedience. And his heart, devotion, starts to turn to all of these other things. It's a heart issue for Solomon. If you were to keep reading, um, it talks about how everything happens with Solomon, but look in verse 4 of chapter 11. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. Solomon had an amazing reign in the kingdom of Israel, but in the end, he ended very badly. His heart was turned away from God because of his disobedience to God's word. You see, we have a popular saying uh, in America today, follow your heart. There is not a worse piece of advice that you could give to someone because the heart will continually deceive us. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Guys, the idea here is that Solomon's heart is what he followed. He wanted wealth. He wanted horses. He wanted power, didn't he? And what did following his heart end up doing? It turned him away from God. So here's my big idea. Here's that statement that I want you to remember this week. And it's simply this. A changed life requires a changed heart. A changed life, if you want your life to be changed by God, you have to allow God to continually be changing your heart, changing the desires of your heart. Because if we follow the desires of our heart selfishly, our heart will always lead us away from God, not to God. I love what Psalm 37.4 says. It says, delight yourself in the Lord 
and he will give you the desires of your heart. Our desires, when we delight in God, our desires will line up with God's desires. That's not what Solomon did towards the end of his life. He found his delight in power and wealth and a huge army and all of these wives. That's where he found his delight. And because his delight was no longer found in God, he got misaligned. And his heart no longer reflected a changed life. His heart reflected a heart just like everyone else. And his life began to look like that. Now let me say one thing. I am not telling you that obedience to God's Word is a guarantee that you will have a good relationship with God. I'm not saying that at all. Because I've known lots of people who are great Pharisees. And they could tell you every law in the Bible and they're pretty obedient to every law, but they're jerks. And they're hateful. And they're mean and vindictive and greedy. Obedience is not a guarantee that you will have a good relationship with your Savior. But, flip that around, you can't have a good relationship with your Savior without obedience to Him. It's the first step. But don't end there. Don't stop there. If you want to have a strong, changed life in the Lord, obedience has to be a part of that lifestyle. But you can't let it stop there. You have to allow God to continually be changing your heart so that your life can be changed as well. A changed life requires a changed heart. So, live in obedience. It is the first step to having your life changed by Jesus Christ. Live in obedience and allow your heart to constantly be changed by the work of the Holy Spirit that's happening within you. That's what God promises in John 14, 15, 16, and all throughout the epistles. The idea is that we are to live in a heart status, a healthy heart status with the Lord. I want you to go back this week, and I want you to read 1 Kings 3 through 11 again. And I want you to note how many times... The Bible, in other words, God, says something about Solomon's heart and where his heart was. In chapter 3, it talks about his heart was devoted to God and he did exactly what God wanted him to do. You go through and you can see instances where his heart is following God and then it begins to shift and change. And by chapter 11, it says that his heart was pulled away from God by the women, by the the wives, these foreign wives and the gods that they worshipped. Check your heart. Make sure that your devotion and your desires in your heart are for God and God alone. So, looking at Solomon's life, will you end well? That's my question this morning. Will you end well? If you want to end well, constantly keep your heart checked by the Holy Spirit. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you so much. God, we thank you for the example that you give us in the life of Solomon. We thank you that Solomon was an amazing man. And you did some some things in Solomon's life and the wisdom that you gave him that can still be an, an example to us today. But God, we also recognize that even though he had a level of wisdom that is unmatched, 
because of his disobedience, he still strayed from you. All the wisdom in the world can't save us. Only Jesus Christ can save us. And so, Lord, I pray for every person here that we would continually keep our hearts in check with you. That we would seek after a changed life through a changed heart. So we thank you, Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a time of response now in our service. And if you need to pray, our altar is open to you. Come and pray. If you need to talk with someone, my name is Pastor Chad. I'm going to be right here uh, on the front pew. I would love the opportunity to talk to you. Uh, If you want to know more about what a life-changing relationship with Jesus looks like, I would love to have that conversation with you. And if you want to grab me here at this front pew or or you want to grab me uh, outside uh, after the service, I would love to have a discussion uh, about you, uh, to you about what it looks like to change your life in Christ. Now let's stand and let's respond.